Major depression affects up to 15% of people treated for cancer, greatly exceeding the 2% prevalence reported in the general population. However, up to 73% of these people with depression and cancer do not receive effective psychiatric treatment. Anxiety is also common, found in 10% of people treated for cancer. We've just published two education articles in the BMJ this week that discuss the issue of depression and anxiety in people with cancer. The articles explore the different causes of mental health problems in cancer patients, highlighting possible biological, psychological or social factors, but also discuss the direct neuropsychiatric effects of specific cancers and certain treatments. It's accompanied by a rather lovely infographic that tries to unpick some of these complex and interacting factors. I'm Kate Adlington, Clinical Editor at the BMJ, and I'm joined today by two of the authors of these articles to learn more about the causes of depression and anxiety in people with can cancer, and also to talk about what doctors can do to best support these patients. So welcome to Andrew Hodgkiss, Honorary Consultant Liaison Psychiatrist at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. Hi, Andrew. Hello. And hello as well to An Alexandra Pittman, Senior Clinical Lecturer in Psychiatry at UCL in London. Hi, Alexandra. Hello. Thank you both for joining us today. Um, we've heard a little bit there about some of the issues around depression and anxiety in cancer, how, how common it is and how potentially patients with depression or mental health problems in cancer maybe have difficulty accessing appropriate treatment. Why did you feel this was an important topic to cover in an article in the BMJ? I think we both felt in our clinical practice with patients with cancer as liaison psychiatrists that a lot of patients were really struggling with depression and anxiety and perhaps their GPs didn't feel confident to recognise this. Often they saw signs like poor sleep or poor appetite and tended to attribute that to the cancer and not possibly dig further and look at whether this might be explained by depression or um, high levels of anxiety to be explained by an anxiety disorder. And we were also aware that there might be reasons why people might be concerned about what treatment pathways they should be using for patients with cancer when in fact they should be using the same treatment pathways as anybody who has depression or anxiety and the step care models that they use generally in their patients in general practice. So we felt that writing an article like this and um, the accompanying 10-minute consultation piece would encourage people to recognise depression and anxiety in these patients and address the major problem of underdiagnosis in this group. Um, I think uh, for me, uh, my enthusiasm for this topic is, is partly because of these really startling statistics that I'm ashamed to say I didn't know until uh, about five years ago, uh, which is that now uh, one in two of us are going to develop cancer uh, and 50% uh, of us uh, can expect to live at least 10 years beyond the diagnosis. So really doctors, all doctors, should be very fluent at looking at quality of life issues and, and obviously uh, mood disturbance is a very important aspect of that. We should all be really good at it and I'm not sure we are. And, and that figure of 73% of people not getting adequately or effectively treated comes out of Sharp and Walker's Lancet work from 2014, very famous study, and a lot of that's due to um, under-treatment in the context of recognition, so the depression has been recognised but simply not adequately addressed. 
So is there a sense that maybe some doctors or, or, or some people, even patients, expect that they might experience some sort of depressive symptoms or anxiety symptoms? And that's just a normal part of the condition. And that's just something, you know, that is to be tolerated or to put up with rather than thinking, actually, is this does this actually meet the criteria of, you know, or the criteria for diagnosis of a condition? And actually, there's the this might be it might be appropriate to to treat these symptoms. I think that was one of the issues that was brought up by the patients we consulted when we were planning these articles, because they felt very strongly that whilst most people would expect to feel, you know, quite traumatized by a cancer diagnosis and to struggle with the treatment, that many of them would get through the difficulties associated with diagnosis and treatment, but find that they were you know, really struggling with depression and anxiety and felt that perhaps this wasn't being recognised. And we had a, a lovely perspective from a patient accompanying this article in which she describes how important it is for people to recognise the problem and, and treat it and to understand it in a cancer context. And, and you mentioned that there is evidence that the sort of poor recognition does have real kind of effects on outcomes so both on outcomes around quality of life but also on survival there's a huge economic argument for treating depression and anxiety in patients with cancer because of issues like treatment adherence people's quality of life um, the engagement with the patient uh, has a huge impact on survival so given the uh, you know the attention paid to improving cancer survival um, improving quality of life um, improving adherence to treatments there's a strong argument for treating depression and anxiety newer evidence suggests that it may not in fact have an impact on survival but there's strong evidence that it improves quality of life and that's exactly what we would like to do for our patients and what patients say strongly they would like to uh, benefit from and and it isn't only evidence around people sort of newly diagnosed with mental health problems sort of um who who have a cancer diagnosis but it it it, it sounds like it's also important to be aware when people have a previous diagnosis of mental health problems who then develop cancer because their outcomes are also significantly worse compared to people who who don't have a um, outcome, a, a previous, sorry, history of mental health problems. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, that's dramatically the case. I mean, I think it's widely understood now that people with severe mental illness are, are dying maybe 15 years younger than the rest of the population. And uh, one of the things they die of is, is cancer, uh, cancer uh, with poor adherence to treatment. And there's a lot of patient blaming goes on and a lot of perception that people with pre-existing severe mental illness perhaps are a bit awkward for engagement with oncology and so on. But I wouldn't put it like that at all. I think uh, I think uh, the, the obstacles to engagement with cancer care are absolutely enormous. So if you're living in a medium secure or high secure prison environment, uh, you're going to probably present late with your cancer. You're going to have missed your, your screening and your self-examination and your, a lot of basic primary care. So you might present late. You may find it difficult to get to appointments. When you get there, you may not be understood. And the mental state abnormalities that can be barriers to the recognition of cancer symptoms, you get diagnostic overshadowing where people think, oh, it's more of the delusions or more of the psychosis being expressed rather than actually hearing that there's a terrible new back pain. Um, all of that uh, slows things down and, and, and really uh, disadvantages the person. And then uh, if they, if they uh, uh, refuse treatment, that's often taken at face value. And of course, what should happen then is, is a big examination of legal capacity and uh, efforts made to, to, to make the treatment accessible. 
I could go on uh, interruption of long-term psychotropics uh, during cancer treatment, interruption of long-term psychological treatments during cancer treatment. So the patient with a pre-existing SMI, uh, severe mental illness has got all those problems. But I think also people with recurrent depression, the cancer diagnosis or the cancer treatment can just be the next loss event that just triggers the next bout. And actually you use some interesting examples in the article of uh, where patients who maybe had previous or existing mental health um, problems may experience relapse. Um, do you want to tell us about sort of a couple of those examples? Um, I mean, I think a classic example is a patient who has schizophrenia, who's on clozapine, and they might have chemotherapy, um, develop neutropenia, and of course the oncologists are unclear whether or not they should stop clozapine because of the impact it has um, on on blood cells. And I think in that in those situations, it's important to seek the advice of a liaison psychiatrist because it's probably very important for that patient to continue on their clozapine and a decision needs to be made about the balance of risk there. Another example would be somebody with a pre-existing bipolar disorder and I think everybody, you know, the the treating team uh, at the cancer centre need to be aware that person's at greatly increased risk of a steroid-induced manic episode uh, compared to somebody who doesn't have a pre-existing bipolar uh, vulnerability. And just thinking a little bit more about people who maybe who haven't had a previous history of mental health problems and um, who, who develop cancer, what, what are the most common mental health conditions that, that do present um, in uh, sort of during someone's cancer journey? Um, and, and at what points might they present? Well, it's generally depression and anxiety. And in our article, we break it down into around the time of diagnosis, during treatment, and even at the end of cancer care, because some patients do find it very difficult to be discharged from cancer services, because often often cancer services can be very, very intense in terms of the support they provide. You have a clinical nurse specialist, you get to know the people you see every day for radiotherapy. So when you're discharged, the sudden loss of support can be experienced as quite difficult by many patients. And that's why we highlight uh, the problems, particularly of anxiety, actually, in survivors of cancer. And whilst um, depression is not so much a problem for survivors of cancer treatment, anxiety is more so perhaps than during treatment, the prevalence rises. And I think it's really important for GPs to keep an eye on patients who are effectively discharged from cancer care because there is a risk that they are actually um, anxious above... um, They are, in fact, um, anxious to a pathological level. I think that's the key thing, isn't it? Because... You know, for people who've gone through uh, you know, a cancer diagnosis, possibly treatment, that, that, that is something that, you know, will provoke anxiety, you know, just thinking about the experience they have, the fear p- potentially of relapse, that there's a degree of anxiety that might be expected, um, you know, and health anxiety that might be expected following an experience like that. How, how can people, GPs, people in, pri- you know, doctors working in primary care, distinguish between that sort of expected level and, and, and helping support people with maybe an expected level of anxiety and, and when when can they think actually this is pathological and maybe this person does need support and, and, and what can they do at that stage? I think it's a question of proportion so when um, you're thinking about anxiety it's a question of whether 
the level of anxiety is disproportionate to the threat. And you probably need to know your patient quite well to understand their particular situation. And of course, GPs do tend to know their patients very well. Um, In the case of depression, the judgment really rests on whether they meet diagnostic criteria. So in our article, we've highlighted particular psychological symptoms of depression that tend to point towards this being uh, diagnostic. So these are particularly anhedonia and very profound hopelessness and helplessness and profound guilt and of course suicidal ideation so whilst a patient with cancer might well be expected to feel very tired they might have lost weight and that can slightly muddy the picture if they are telling you very clearly that they just don't enjoy things that they used to enjoy then that is raising a suspicion of a diagnosis of um, depression and and that's because as you say those symptoms are less likely to be caused by the you know side effects of the medication or or of the 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 cancer itself exactly So we see patients in practice who they've they've had curative treatment, they've come through the other side of chemo, they've been given a fantastic um, prognosis, but yet they cannot shake this this profound depression. And a couple of patients I've seen who were really quite appalled by themselves at not you know not being able to move on from from discharge from cancer services, but they had untreated depression, mm. and of course um, they. They, they needed active treatment and of course they couldn't, to use their own words, shake off this low mood because they had untreated depression. And once they'd been given treatment as per usual nice recommendations, they made a good response. Um, we've talked a little bit there about sort of um, presentation of depression or anxiety sort of later in the course of um, cancer and, 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 you know, after remission or treatment. But you also said that symptoms can present very early and indeed sometimes they can be the first symptoms that people present to the um, healthcare with before even um, having a cancer diagnosis, perhaps even heralding a cancer diagnosis. What what situations might that occur in? Well, I think the classic example uh, is is, uh, adenocarcinoma of the pancreas, um, which often uh, will present with a severe depression, uh, you know, uh, six months, many months before the person even knows or their doctor knows they have cancer uh, and can, as you say, herald the diagnosis. Now, we've known that of all the cancers, uh, pancreatic cancer has the highest rate of severe depression of any of them, and we've known that for over 150 years, um, but we never knew why. Um, and, and fairly recently, uh, Breitbart and his colleagues at uh, Sloan Kettering have actually shown that there's a biological basis to it, and we think it's something to do with uh, pro-inflammatory cytokine release by the actual tumour itself. So there's a there's an example uh, of 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 uh, depression heralding a cancer diagnosis. In terms of what that means for us all, I think what I would say is I don't think we need to investigate everybody with depression for lots of different types of cancer. I don't think that's the message. But I think if somebody develops depression for the first time in their life over the age of, say, 45, 50, I definitely think uh, pancreatic cancer should be in the differentials, something to think about, especially then ask them about steatorrhea and weight loss and back pain. Okay, that's really useful. Um, and, And I suppose we're touching on now, and what I found really useful about the articles was and and that the infographic does particularly is thinking about different sort of causes and and ways of categorizing different causes of um, depression, anxiety and cancer. And and you helpfully kind of think about it in in two different ways. So one, thinking about kind of the biopsychosocial model, if you will, or, or causes, and one kind of more the neuropsychiatric effects or the sort of organic effects of, um, of cancer themselves or their treatments 
Do you want to sort of explain a little bit more about about that? It's a, it's a slightly um, uh, complicated distinction, but it's well worth pursuing. So some people will get depression during cancer care because of, if you like, the standard bioso- biopsychosocial etiology. So they may have a genetic predisposition to depression because of the family history. There may have been some childhood adversity. Uh, now uh, the 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 the, uh, uh, the the psychological loss event of the cancer diagnosis, or perhaps say the loss of a breast with a mastectomy, um, and then finally the whole social situation, the loss of roles. So there's often multiple losses against uh, a, a background, a genetic background of vulnerability. So that all psychiatrists are well versed in that biopsychosocial etiology and I'd say the majority of depression among people with cancer can be understood that way but there is an important minority of patients where really that's not it at all and they may never have had uh, any genetic predisposition nothing uh, no previous mental health problems no particularly difficult biographical issues and yet they get very depressed during cancer treatment and then I think we need to think well is that some sort of direct biological or neuropsychiatric or organic effect of either the tumour or the treatment and that's uh, something we've tried to uh, even though those things are one by one are rare uh, we've tried to draw attention to them in the article. So you've already mentioned um, pancreatic cancer and in the article you point to other uh, types of cancer that might be more likely um, to lead to depression or anxiety and, and similarly certain treatments some would be more likely to have psychiatric sequelae are there are there any others that sort of our listeners or people reading this really should know obviously that and and i know looking at the infographic there are there's lots there but are, are there any that you would pull out of that that would be really useful for a gp or someone in primary care to know well, just thinking about the tumours themselves, I think probably uh, the other uh, top of the list for organic psychiatric disorders in the context of cancer would be the lung cancers, um, non-small cell being particularly associated with things like hypercalcemia uh, 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 as a driver of uh, low mood and sometimes confusion. Uh, small cell lung cancer, much more likely to uh, cause brain metastases, uh, but also uh, low sodium through syndrome of inappropriate ADH, which can present as low mood and be very, especially in older women, uh, it's quite a common complication, maybe 15% of people with small cell lung cancer. So that's a, I'd say lung cancer is probably top of my list for for, for that, but there are others, and, and particularly if, if, if an endocrine organ is involved, uh, I think then you should be thinking about biological mechanisms. And, and you mentioned steroids, obviously, as, um, as one of the treatments um, that I think most um, doctors, non-specialists will be aware of has um, psychiatric side effects. Are there any specific chemotherapies that are commonly used that, uh, or, or potentially radio, types of radiotherapy or sites of radiotherapy that we should be thinking about? Well, uh, yes, uh, radiotherapy is an interesting case in point because I think uh, uh, it's quite surprising how it does it. So pelvic irradiation, which you would think is sufficiently far away from the brain to be irrelevant, actually can cause B12 deficiency in about 14% of people who've had pelvic irradiation, either for colorectal cancer or gynecological malignancy. So 14% of them will be B12 deficient in the years ahead, and that's often missed, and that can present with low mood. Uh, So that's that's an example there. 
radiotherapy for head and neck tumours, the rate of hypothyroidism in the year after the radiotherapy is as high as 40%. And two-thirds of those people will have depressive symptoms. So whilst it's important to be aware of those things, I think what you touched, what you mentioned before was that actually in the vast majority of cases, though, it is more kind of biopsychosocial causes that that will be kind of the underlying etiology. Is that is that is that kind of absolutely? And I think that's why in doing the article, we wanted to summarise this taxonomy, if you like, so that people could be clear in their minds about these two different pathways and improve their confidence in terms of recognising depression and anxiety. And we've included some prescribing pointers for patients um, with cancer, which we hope will be a really useful um, aid memoir for people, um, perhaps to print out and keep in clinic. Um, We certainly find it very useful in clinical practice. Um, And these just point out the kind of contraindications to look out for. Um, And we hope that those will be helpful. So I suppose moving on to treatment, that was one of the questions I was going to say, you know, how does the etiology matter in terms of when it comes to thinking about treatment and management of people um, of depression, anxiety with people with cancer? um, What's the approach and does the etiology matter in terms of your management? Well, uh, this is really interesting. I think if you've got the biopsychosocial etiology, as I'm referring to, there's, there's masses of evidence that psychological treatment's pretty much just as good as pharmacological, and the two together are even better. Uh, and so we've got psycho-oncology services uh, with, with clinical psychologists and uh, uh, cancer counsellors, psychotherapists uh, scattered. Uh, they're better developed in some parts of the country than others, but they're entirely appropriate for treating cancer during the period of intense engagement with the cancer centre. So I would commend that, uh, you know, with a psychiatrist backing up with the option of prescribing. But I think if you've got... Uh, mood disturbance arising through these direct organic neuropsychiatric mechanisms we're describing then really you need to get together with the the, 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 um, the GP or the psychiatrist needs to get together with the treating oncology team and try and uh, elucidate it with them and often we rely on the oncologists to rule out organic causes but we may be asking them to do something slightly beyond what their focus of attention is because often they're very focused on survival and on planning planning chemotherapy regimens or targeted treatments and they're not really totally focused on uh, the prevention and treatment of the organic psychiatric complications the neuropsychiatric complications so I think it's a dialogue uh, if, if that's the side of the uh, etiology that we're on. So I suppose, you know, based on these discussions, it sounds like there are quite a few things to think about, both the effects of of, of the tumour, the effects of chemotherapy, and that might cause anxiety amongst non-specialists about prescribing. They might worry about, for example, you know, making an initial prescription for an antidepressant because they don't want to cause more harm more harm to the patient what what would you say to those doctors are, are they right to worry what should they do in those circumstances well this is exactly why we wrote this article we wanted to lay out very clearly what to be mindful of when prescribing um, and to encourage people to prescribe and to treat depression and anxiety but but not just to prescribe to use psychological therapies um, judiciously and to make referrals to IAPT or to local psychological support services embedded in oncology um, teams. So really that's our key message.
So I, I totally uh, understand that it, it, from you know from the context of, of a prescriber uh, in a primary care setting or a community mental health team who perhaps doesn't have the whole oncological notes right up to date in front of them, it can be a little bit nerve-wracking to put pen to paper on the prescription, especially if you're facing somebody who's rather frail and maybe on the eve of treatment. So I totally get that. Uh, and obviously I've had the privilege of working in the cancer centre, so it hasn't been such an issue for me, but I do understand that 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 dilemma and 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 it's true that one could in certain circumstances harm a frail elderly patient with the antidepressants and do more harm than good for example by provoking hyponatremia with the drug or uh, inadvertently suppressing the bone marrow a little however uh, We've said that the cancer pathway for many people lasts literally years or decades now, and for most of the time they're on that pathway, prescribing is going to be the same as usual. And so, although you may not wish to prescribe literally on the eve of chemo, bring them back a few weeks later, and then and then and then look at it again and and prescribe as normal. And we've tried to put a few prescribing pointers in the article, uh, things to to avoid and things to consider in in particular circumstances, but. It- in the majority of cases, actually, the treatment um, recommendations will probably be the same as for some a person without without. Yes, cancer. and obviously there's some common sense here. I mean, if somebody's been left with diarrhoea as a long-term side effect of pelvic irradiation, uh, we wouldn't choose a, an antidepressant such as an SSRI that, that can cause diarrhoea as a side effect. It might be an argument for looking at uh, other medicines such as mitazapine or venlafaxine for that individual. I think about thinking ahead. So if you've got a patient who's newly diagnosed with, say, lung cancer, and you have a sense of what the likely chemotherapy regimen is, then you can plan, if you were thinking of prescribing an anti-anxiety or antidepressant medication, then you might plan that agent in line with what chemotherapy was planned. So a good example of that would be if somebody was heading for tamoxifen and you knew that, you you would probably want to avoid... uh, drugs that interfere with uh, CYP2D6, uh, which is what turns the tamoxifen into its active metabolite, endoxifen, which actually exerts the anti-cancer effect. Now, you don't want to give an antidepressant that's going to interfere with that, and we think fluoxetine and peroxetine could. Uh, it's not crystal clear, but they're best avoided in that scenario. So if you know someone's heading for tamoxifen, you can plan and avoid those two would be a nice example. So I suppose that comes back to your your point about the importance of trying to work as a MDT, which isn't always easy when, you know, people are oncology you know clinics are scattered from the mental health services, you know, is far away from primary care. But there's something there about um, you know, if recognizing and diagnosing, but then looking forward and being able to communicate with people who will be treating someone's cancer kind of going forward and in the longer term how easy is that in practice how how can how can that work better how can how can the services work better together I suppose I, I, I don't know whether this is true but I've been told anecdotally that if you get a cancer diagnosis in France you get your own psycho-oncologist from day one and we haven't quite achieved that here um, but it's uh, certainly true in the private sector, in, uh, in, in, in big hospitals, famous hospitals in America, for the insured population, the, the, the substantial psychological and psychiatric support comes with the water at the cancer centre. And we are not at that point in this country. And the question is, can we uh, knit together existing disparate services like community mental health teams, IAPT, Vanguard IAPT, 
GP practices, oncology centres, can they communicate rapidly enough and clearly enough with each other to get good outcomes here? And I think the answer is outside research settings, the answer seems to be no. I mean, what, what Sharp did in this very famous 2014 uh, study, Sharp and Walker, they, they managed to get most of Scotland to cooperate with a research project where uh, the liaison psychiatrist and the CNSs uh, integrated the depression care into the cancer care and um, sort of harnessed the energy of the GPs and, and, and prompted them with their prescribing and, and, and they were able to treat to target and so on. And in that research setting, they got a, a much better set of outcomes for the depression. But I think in day-to-day -day practice, it's all the usual obstacles of letter writing, different IT systems, perhaps people not knowing the cancer care pathways that well, mental health professionals having insufficient physical health background, so a lot of people in CMHTs knowing very little about cancer care in the contemporary sense. So it's a real problem and some people would say well we need you know specialist psycho-oncology services and cancer psychiatrists in every hospital but clearly we're not going to get that tomorrow. So I think other solutions do need to be found and then beyond that there's a there's a much more searching question which is if one in two of us are going to have cancer and lots of us are going to be long-term uh, living with and beyond cancer survivors if you want to use that word there's no services to back that up in terms of physical consequences of treatment or psychiatric consequences of treatment and i occasionally hear people say oh well gps will have to pick that up but you know gps are busy yeah. <laughs> and it's actually quite specialist work yeah. and we haven't answered that at all as a, as a community yet. and and but saying that it's specialist work you know if, if people in primary care don't have, or doctors in primary care don't have access to specialist services, actually a referral to, you know, IAPT are able to provide appropriate, you know, and focused psychological therapy for these patients. They are, although uh, a lot of patients' experience is that they have to spend a lot of time explaining cancer care to the therapist, which, you know, has its frustrations, even though the therapist may be a very good therapist for the mood upset. I wanted to touch a little as you do in the article as well about um, palliative care settings because one of the things that you draw out is the fact that actually and some people might find it surprising uh, mental health diagnoses are, are no more prevalent in um, people with cancer with in palliative care than they are in non-palliative settings. Um, do you want to comment sort of a little bit more on that? I think this makes the point that while people expect patients who are in the terminal phases of their illness perhaps to feel depressed at that point. They don't expect newly diagnosed patients to feel depressed. And I think the point made in the article is that it's possible to feel very depressed even at the point of diagnosis, even if the cancer has a very good prognosis. There's some quite concerning evidence that suicide rates are slightly elevated in patients with cancer. Now, there's certainly not convincing evidence that this is explained by depression, but I think it's very striking that the highest risk estimates are in the first week after diagnosis, and that's very alarming. And I think we need to take very seriously patients' complaints about severe anxiety or depressed depressed mood in the aftermath of a cancer diagnosis. And so presumably then thinking about kind of risk assessments even at that very early stage and, and, and the sort of the impact on mental health at the point of diagnosis is important whatever the setting. Absolutely and I suppose that's why it's important to have access to psychological support at all stages and the patients we consulted also highlighted how anxious they felt even prior to a cancer diagnosis, that horrendous wait between you know, having your tests and finding out the results. But of course, at that point, you're not a cancer patient, so you're not eligible for anything. But 
They wanted to explain that at every point of the cancer journey, there are different issues to grapple with psychologically, whether that be adjusting to the news and perhaps having a slightly catastrophic reaction to that news. And then later on adjusting to changes of role, not being able to go to work, being able to perform their usual roles in work or as a parent or as a partner. And again, as I mentioned, the difficulty adjusting to discharge from that level of support. And I think these are considerations to bear in mind at each stage of the cancer journey. And and you, you you mentioned there suicidal ideation and kind of the importance perhaps of uh, you know of being aware of of that and the increased suicide risk and and you touch on as well which is I suppose linked is um, this the term desire for hastened death um, could you tell us a bit more about that Andrew desire for hastened death is 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 uh, a term that comes really out of the palliative medicine field as I understand it and it's uh, it's where people want it to hurry up and happen so it's exactly what it says they want it to hurry up and happen and the drivers uh, of that can be poorly controlled physical symptoms so pain would be something you would want to explore if somebody was asking for this to hurry up and happen but also breathlessness and other physical symptoms that might be frankly unbearable but also the distress and suffering associated with severe depression can be a driver. So a proportion of people expressing a desire for hastened death, it will be severe depression and the intolerability of those symptoms like loss of feeling and despair and so on. But the management, the risk management is obviously quite tricky because I think we, you know, the, the, it's, it's not an easy thing to do to uh, be coercive to be uh, thinking about special observation, uh, inpatient admission, psychiatric admission of people who are perhaps quite close to the end of their life. It's not entirely appropriate. They're not going to have a good experience. And you could say it's rather defensive practice to go that way. So we're always trying to think about how else might we manage it. And actually, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the approaches I've seen is, is to... Uh, explore the drivers and try and tackle them with with medicine or or, or with uh, pain relief and so on uh, or, or relieve the isolation or whatever it is that's driving it if you can but the other thing is to to, to put the patient back in the driving seat and actually work with the palliative uh, care professionals to talk about advanced care planning uh, if it hasn't already happened so that the patient regains autonomy and uh, can be very clear about things they don't want done to them that are potentially life-prolonging and so on. And if those things are openly addressed, what you often find is that the desire for haste and death is lessened and you don't need to resort to the kind of coercive things we do to younger people who, who convince us that they've got suicidal thoughts and so on. So it's a slightly different approach. I hope that yeah, comes no. across. There are certain types of cancer that are uh, statistically linked to completed suicide and they are the ones that perhaps cause the most disruption of day-to-day -day quality of life so actually um, head and neck cancer and lung cancer have particularly high rates um, of completed suicide and they can be six times the standardized uh, mortality rate the age and sex max mortality rate so I think that's quite a striking statistic particularly in the first few months after diagnosis as Alexandra said and uh, later on if there's a recurrence those are the real risk periods so I think when you're assessing you you're listening but you're aware of those sort of demographic uh, and diagnostic risk factors. I suppose the other issue is that 
patients sometimes feel awkward about expressing suicidal ideation because in some cases they're being given very costly treatments, um, they're aware that they're getting a very high standard of care from oncologists and they feel guilty admitting to this mm-hmm. idea that they might be wanting to do something quite the opposite. And that's why it's important um, to elicit suicidal ideation very carefully and almost normalise it for some patients. And I by that I mean to give them permission to express suicidal ideation, to say, to say something along the lines of sometimes people who are undergoing cancer treatment find it very difficult. Psychologically, sometimes they feel that life may not be worth living. Is that something that you've ever felt? And that, in a way, gives them permission to express those thoughts. And that's something that we um, have been working with clinical nurse specialists and ward nurses to address in their patients because... If you don't ask, they're probably not going to tell you. And and the point that you raise as well, which is obviously, which is an important one about the fact that asking isn't going to make it more likely to happen. So asking about suicidal ideation isn't going to make um, patients more likely to harm themselves. Exactly, and I think the most important thing is once you've identified if that someone feels suicidal is you help them think about what the key issues for them are and as Andrew mentioned it might be pain and we've had patients who once you've treated the pain they no longer feel suicidal at all and it may be as simple as that so eliciting suicidal ideation is the start to problem solving for that patient but it's only when you try and unpick why they feel suicidal that you can start to understand those problems and address them one by one. You've been listening to the BMJ podcast where we've been discussing two recent education articles, a clinical update called Depression and Anxiety in Patients with Cancer and a 10-minute consultation on exploring low mood in a person with cancer. You can find these and all our other education articles at bmj.com. So thank you very much, Alexandra, for joining us. Thank you. And thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks for having us. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, then you can find and subscribe to more podcasts from the BMJ on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts from. That's all for now, but we'll be back soon. Thanks very much.